as you know, we've been in the book of Psalms for the last few weeks, and uh, we're going to continue today in the Psalms, but we're going to look at Psalm 7 this morning, and uh, we're in our series on the book of Psalms called Kiss the Sun, and so we're going to be looking at Psalm 7, and I want to start just by reading the psalm, so uh, if you'd like to put the words on the screen, guys, you could do that and uh, follow along. We're going to start reading Psalm 7 in verse 1. A shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord, concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift, up your, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you, and over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and the hearts. O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He is bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give thanks to the Lord. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. This is God's word. So let's pray as we uh, begin to look at this psalm this morning. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Lord, thank you so much today for your word. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as your people this morning to be comforted, Lord, to be built up, to be edified, to be convicted. And Lord, we, right now, we just ask that you would open our minds and open our hearts, Lord, that we would be able to hear what you would say to us today. That, Lord, we could even pray that prayer, open our eyes, Lord, that we might see wonderful things in your law. So, Lord, I pray that you just give me the words. Lord, lead me and uh, help us, Lord, today just to all be able to hear your word, that you'd give us ears to hear 
And Lord, we, we will give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you first look at this psalm, uh, it's, it's definitely a psalm that you need to dig into a little bit. And as we look at this today, I want to start just by way of introduction. Um, I'm sure that none of us here today are, you know, in that physical danger that David was experiencing and David was in. But I'm sure that a lot of us can't help but think of some of our fellow believers across the world, you know, whether it be in countries like Afghanistan or Indonesia, parts of Africa, where persecution and physical danger of our fellow believers in Christ is a very real thing. And, uh, and this morning, you know, we, none of us here today are, are in that physical danger that David was in. But this still applies to us, and we can learn much from this psalm because there is not a single one of us as, as believers who has not or will not experience the sting of accusation. Accusations that are based in truth are painful enough, but false accusations based on lies can be the most painful, especially when they are believed and accepted as truth by the majority. Even if the accusations are proven false, the stain and suspicion that it can leave on the one who's been accused can remain for a lifetime. I can think of a couple high-profile examples in our day recently uh, of people who've been slandered with false accusations. And these are names that many of us would recognize, even in this local area. But names that that uh, we would recognize, names like Brett Kavanaugh. He was a recently appointed Supreme Court judge, slandered as he was just before his appointment. Or I think of a local TV meteorologist, uh, Jeremy Kappel, who was wrongly fired from his job, and he was demonized among the community based on false assumptions of a few bitter and vengeful people, slandered and accused, and falsely so. And so I want to I set up the setting of this psalm, and I want us to look now at the setting for this psalm. Because as we read in verse 1, this psalm begins with a plea for help, and David is literally being pursued by those who are after his life. And David was no stranger to being pursued throughout his life. He had been pursued on on more than one occasion throughout his life. His relationship with King Saul early on, and then later when his son Absalom stirred up a rebellion against him. And in the heading it says here that David sang these words concerning the words of Cush, the Benjamite. And throughout his life, David faced many problems from the Benjamites. 
And so it's really no surprise then that we learn that Benjamin was the tribe of King Saul. And speculation abounds regarding what is meant by the title Cush. But the term Benjamite evidently helps us to see that he was identified with Saul. So David's song here is concerning the words, the words of Cush. And what were these words? Well, David was being falsely accused. And these accusations were serious enough to justify in the minds of his pursuers that he be hunted down and killed. And so it's likely that this supporter of Saul, whoever he might have been, had been speaking lies to King Saul and poisoning his suspicious nature and all those with him. And specifically, these were lies that David was seeking Saul's harm. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 24, as I was studying, uh, this, this passage seems to indicate the original setting in which David was inspired to write the words of Psalm 7. So I want us to pick up reading in, in verse 9 of 1 Samuel 24. If you'd like to open your Bibles or Bible apps, you can also watch on the screen here. But in 1 Samuel 24 and verse 9, we get a clearer picture of the original setting of Psalm 7. And starting in verse 9, David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. This is David saying this. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So David had been on the run from Saul for quite some time at this point. And in fact, it's, it's really quite interesting. If, if you start reading all the way from 1 Samuel chapter 18 and all the way through chapter 24, you can see a bigger picture of David's relationship with Saul and the events that inspired the writing of this psalm. These chapters in 1 Samuel inform us of the outward circumstances surrounding this season of David's life. 
Whereas in Psalm 7, we get to find out what's going on inside David's mind and heart. How does he deal with these outward circumstances internally? And so, even more importantly, as we approach this passage this morning, we need to ask why. Why is it important for us to study this psalm? To study the words of a man who was being persecuted and falsely accused? Well, I want to highlight two reasons why by the end of our journey through this psalm. And the first reason is this. That slander and false accusation are pervasive in our world and in our society. Every one of us is affected by slander, either as those who have fallen victim to it, as David did here in Psalm 7, or as those who have perpetrated it. And so as we study, we see several things about, about who God is. And what God does for us when we're suffering from slander and false accusation. And the first thing, I'll just, I'll just give a quick overview here. The first thing is this, that we learn about God, who God is. In verses 1 to 2 of Psalm 7, we're going to learn that God is a safe refuge. Amen? And then in verse 3 to 9, we're going to learn that, that God is a just vindicator. And then moving on into verses 10 to 16, we're going to see that God is a certain Savior. And then in verse 17, finally, we're going to see that God is worthy of praise. God is a safe refuge for us. He's a just vindicator. He's a certain Savior, and He's worthy of praise. Amen. So if you're discouraged this morning... If you're feeling the weight of accusation and condemnation, let's allow the Lord through the scripture to speak to us and even further to allow these verses to speak for us. So in verse 1, and you guys can put that on the screen if you'd like, verse 1 of Psalm 7, David says, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Some other translations say, in you do I put my trust. Do I take refuge? I put my trust in you, Lord. And the idea here is that of fleeing or running to a refuge. There is a tone of distress as this psalm begins, a cry for help. And a few, a couple weeks back when David, or I'm sorry, when Caleb... <laughs> Ah, uh, boy. <laughs> when Caleb was uh, speaking from Psalm 5, uh, <laughs> he talked about that place of refuge in the Lord of the Rings story called Helm's Deep. And Helm's Deep was the place to be when you were under threat. Helm's Deep, the refuge. So in verse 1, David is seeing God here as a fortress in which he can find safety in the midst of an attack. See, when we're faced with very clear and present danger from enemies, 
We need something larger than ourselves. Something outside of ourselves to find protection. And it's interesting to note that the phrase, take refuge, which means trust, in verse 1 here, is also translated in the past tense in some translations. We could therefore read verse 1 as, as this, In you, Lord, have I taken refuge. In you have I trusted. Implying that his trust has been ongoing. He's declaring his faith once again. This is not a faith that's just once and then over. But this is a faith that continues. A faith that endures. A faith that perseveres. We all know the hymn, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. David, through many dangers, toils, and snares, he has already come. He's already encountered lions and bears. And a giant named Goliath. And yet now again, he's facing persecutions and false accusations. But yet his trust has continued from past experience, all those things passed into this present trial. O Lord, in you have I trusted. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. You are my refuge. And so he says in verse 1, continuing, Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. But why does he continue to go to the Lord? Why does David continue to go to the Lord and appeal his case to God? Why does he give priority to calling on God for help and deliverance versus, let's say, maybe, I don't know, uh, calling up an army of his loyal friends and and allies and, and just wipe out his persecutors? Why would David not try to take the matter into his own hands and figure out a way to save himself? Well, I think the first words that he utters in verse 1 here are revealing. Look with me here. It says in verse 1 again, he says, Oh, Lord, my God. And the word Lord, I want to focus in on that for just a minute. The word Lord in the Hebrew is pronounced something like, and we've heard sometimes uh, God's name pronounced like Yahweh. Yahweh. And the word Lord in the Hebrew is pronounced something like Yahweh. So you might say, okay, well, why does that matter? Well, Yahweh is built out of the word for I am. Which tells us that God absolutely is. This means that David's faith was not in vain. He's appealing to a God who absolutely exists. And this reminds me of a New Testament passage that, uh, that, you, that, that you may know. Hebrews 11, verse 6. And that verse says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe, what? That he is. And that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, the significance of the name Yahweh or I am, says many things about God, but I just want to highlight two reasons why an understanding of God, specifically as Yahweh, 
is so significant here and causes David to bring his case and his appeal to God rather than someplace else. And so this, is, this was from an article uh, on the Desiring God website in terms of explaining the significance of Yahweh. But the first thing is this, that God as Yahweh, his name as Yahweh means that he is utterly independent. He depends on nothing to make him what he is. And everything that is not God depends totally on God. The entire universe, everything we see, everything we know is utterly secondary to God. It all came into being by God and it stays in being moment by moment on God's decision to keep it in being. In Colossians 1.17, we read that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Amen? Yahweh, our God, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. The second thing I want to highlight is this, that God's name as Yahweh means that he is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot be improved. He is not becoming anything. He is who he is. Hallelujah. God is the absolute standard of truth and goodness and beauty. There is no law book to which he looks to know what is right. No almanac to establish facts. No guild to determine what is excellent or beautiful. But he himself is the standard of what is right, what is true, and what is beautiful. God does whatever he pleases, and it is always right, and it is always beautiful, and always in accord with truth. Amen? That's worth giving him some praise for. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. He always does what is right and beautiful and in accord with truth. Psalm 115 in verse 1, I'm sorry, in verse 3, Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. So here in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of David being surrounded by lies and false accusations, he bows in acknowledgement and he, and, it's, and he speaks that one word, Lord. He remembers that there is an absolute standard of truth and righteousness and he recognizes that God rules and overrules in all the affairs of men. So he says, In you, O Lord, my God, do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. And then in verse 2 he says, Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. As we've already mentioned, David here is facing serious opposition to the point where his very life is being pursued. He is a wanted man. And the rage of those who are against him is great. Now, David knew what it was like to fight a lion. He had, first experience, he had first-hand experience already in fighting off a lion and a bear while keeping sheep. And he says here that the power of their slander 
and the fierceness of their hatred is like that of a lion which tears apart, violently wrenching something into pieces. And I think this gives us something of the character of, of a characteristic of what slander does in false accusation. That slander and false accusation are powerfully destructive. It can take someone's life and someone's soul and figuratively do what a lion does to its prey. Tear it to pieces. Slander and false accusation, it destroys reputations and livelihoods. It destroys relationships, ruins marriages, and so much more. So as we continue in looking at this psalm, let's... Let's look in verse 3, and and as we begin to read this, we're going to start to see God as a just vindicator. And so David begins to describe in verse 3 what he's actually being accused of doing by his enemies. David says here in verse 3, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, If I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, then let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Now David, in this section here, we see that he has a clear conscience regarding these accusations. And I'll quote the Reformation commentary here. It says this, Therefore David is saying, Lord my God, if I have done such and it is wrong, then may my enemy persecute my soul. That is, he's saying, I am innocent and I have a good conscience in this matter. In other things I am guilty before you and have sinned greatly, but here, in this matter of which I am accused, you know, Lord, that I am righteous. For you chose me to be king in Saul's place. I did not cast Saul out. I did not pursue it by means of deceit and violence. I am not ambitious. If I have done so, however, I am willing to suffer whatever I should suffer. If I deserve it, if I am willing to be subject to my enemy, I am willing to be subject to my enemy. He should capture, martyr, kill, or completely annihilate me. See, David, in this particular matter of accusation of what he's being accused of, he knows that he's innocent. Not Now, this is not in a general sense regarding overall sinlessness, but in reference to these specific charges, David knows that it would be wrong for those liars and slanderers to see their desire satisfied by his destruction. So he says in verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. He must be vindicated by God in this matter because there's really no one else he can go to. Commentator Philip Melanchthon says this, It is difficult for the wise to endure accusations. Therefore, this psalm teaches what must be done and from where we should seek and expect a defense when the judgments of the world are unjust. It teaches us that the righteousness of a good conscience must be upheld 
and that a defense and deliverance must be sought and expected from God. And we also see in this prayer that David is praying not just for himself in this matter. His prayer for protection and vindication was not fundamentally selfish. He knew that his fate, if these liars and accusers and pursuers have their way with him, he knew that his fate was vitally connected to the welfare of God's people. And so it was for their sake that he's asking God to defend him. He knew that God's will was for him to be king after Saul. Samuel had already anointed him as king. And so he knew that God's will was for him not to be destroyed, not to be killed. And so he's asking for nothing here but what is in accordance is in accordance to the appointment or with the appointment of God. He's asking for nothing but what is according to the appointment of God. And so he actively prays for God's will to be accomplished. And I like how the, uh, the New King James Version says, says it here in, in verse 6 and 7. The New King James Version says, Rise up for me, O Lord, to the judgment that you have commanded so that the congregation of the peoples shall surround you for their sakes, therefore, return on high. So David is praying for himself, but he's also praying not just for himself, but, his, but the people of God. And he continues in verse 8. Let's read in verse 8. It says, The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Now, as we continue to look at this text and we apply it literally to David, we need to be very clear that David was not speaking of his righteousness or his integrity in a broad, universal sense but only with respect to the matter at hand. These false accusations that he was being accused of. David says the Lord, and when he says the Lord judges the peoples, he's saying essentially the Lord is the one who decides if people are right or wrong. And when he says, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, he's simply saying, Lord, you call the shots Because you know that I'm not hiding anything. You know my thoughts and you know my motivations in this matter. You see beyond the surface and you know all things. You discern the mind and the heart, the innermost parts of a man. And so then we move on to verse 11. Read with me in verse 11. It says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. You know, when some people hear this, it's it's a tough verse, right? God is a righteous judge who feels indignation. Now, some translations, there's a little bit of um, back and forth on this. Some some translations say uh, a God who feels indignation every day But others, such as Young's literal translation, say, who feels indignation not at all times. 
And so I really, you know, I don't know. <laughs> um, we'll just have to leave that discussion for another day at another time. <clears throat> but as Psalm 45, verse 3 says, and I just want to bring this into the discussion here on verse 11. Psalm 45, verse 3 says this, The righteous judge, this righteous judge has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Did you hear that? That God loves, as a righteous judge, he has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. See, God is a God of love, and we know that, and we love to proclaim that. But since he's a God of love, and since he is a God who loves, he also must hate. If you love your child, then you must necessarily hate child abuse. And since God loves righteousness, he must necessarily hate sin. It is precisely because God is a righteous judge that he feels indignation against wickedness. But his anger is not like the anger we experience. You know, that sinful human anger that all of us have experienced. See, God's anger is not a temporary loss of self-control or, or, a, or a childish tantrum or a selfish fit of emotion. It is not the result of any kind of frustration or exasperation. See, the wrath of God is something holy and good. It is terrifying, but it is glorious and lovely at the same time. His wrath, God's wrath, is his holy, white-hot hatred of all that is evil and all that is bad. It is the reaction the revulsion of his holy nature against sin. You cannot bring God and sin together. And just to understand the absurdity of those who would say that they don't believe in a God who hates, I want us to simply think of what we'd expect from an earthly judge. I mean, let's imagine for a moment that there's an earthly judge, and he or she is in the courtroom, and you have the prosecution and the accused and let's just say for the sake of this illustration that the accused is guilty. And whatever it is that they're accused of, they actually did it. Now, if that human judge were to say, well, Mr. So-and-so, I, I know that, that you murdered that person. It's been proven. We've heard your confession. But I'm feeling generous and compassionate today. So my verdict is not guilty. You're free to go. What person would not be outraged by that? For a judge to excuse the crime in the name of compassion. You see, we expect human judges to be just and righteous. And here in the scripture, we see that God is a righteous judge. Every sin must be punished, and God will by no means clear the guilty. And so he says here in verse 12, If a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow, and he has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. You see, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
as it says in Hebrews 10. In verses 14 to 16 are a brief meditation on how the wicked, as we, move, as we continue moving through here, I want to look at verses 14 to 16. This is a brief meditation on how the wicked are punished by their own evil. Verse 14, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. McLaren's commentary explains further this idea of the wicked man giving birth to lies or falsehood. It says this, this is, this is really just a highly metaphorical way of saying that the sinner never does what he means to do, but that the end of all his plans is disappointment. It is the unseen force of the supernatural hand that condemns him to feed on ashes and to make and trust in lies. Verse 15 brings out more fully the idea implied in the phrase, Give, gives birth to lies. Namely, the failure of evil to accomplish its doer's purpose. Crafty attempts to trap others have an ugly habit of snaring their contriver. The hunter tumbles into the pitfall dug by him for his prey. And really, we see this reality of what we read here in verse 16 and 15. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he's made. The mischief returning upon his own head. We see this reality illustrated many times throughout the scriptures. It was striking, even as we think of the end of Saul, the righteous retribution that was dealt to God by, or was dealt by God to Saul. See, Saul had plotted against David, saying, "Let not my hand be on him, be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be on him." But in the end, David was actually the one saved by the Philistines, and Saul was the one slain by the Philistines. Or another illustration of Haman laying a trap for God's people in the book of Esther. But yet Haman was the one put to death on the same gallows which he had prepared to hang the innocent Mordecai from. And so Psalm 7 closes with thanksgiving and praise. And David says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. In other words, David said, I give thanks to the Lord because he always does what is right. Now, if you remember earlier in this message, I wanted to ask the question, why is it important for us to study this psalm? To study the words of a man who was being persecuted and falsely accused? Well, the most important reason that we ought to study this psalm is because of this. There is not a single one of us here today who can say in all truth that we are not guilty of having iniquity in our hands. The accusations that our enemy hurls at us are actually based on truth. They're actually true. 
Not one of us can say that our hands have been clean and our hearts have been pure. We have all sinned and are constantly falling short of his glory. So in light of this, how how can we be confident in the day of God's judgment? How can we not be terrified at the fact that God is angry with the wicked every day? How? Well, because there was another man who was persecuted, who was slandered by his enemies and falsely accused by those who hated him. If we read in Matthew chapter 26 of Jesus, starting in verse 59, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. They found none. And though many false witnesses came forward, and two false witnesses came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. See, this man, Jesus, was the persecuted one. This man, Jesus, was the persecuted one in Psalm 7. Jesus was accused of many things while on this earth. And yet, he was the truly innocent one. The only one who could say with full confidence, O Lord, my God, If I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Jesus was the only one who could say that with full confidence. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6. And just as Christ, the innocent one, hung there on the cross, and God poured out his wrath upon him, it was for our sins. It wasn't for his. He had no sin. It was for our sake that he made him who knew no sin. to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And therefore today, Jesus' life is still with him and our life is now hidden with his life in God. Amen? Everything that once stood against us is defeated. Every weapon that's formed against us Every accusing tongue that rises up against us in judgment, like it says in Isaiah 54, we have authority to condemn. Not because of our righteousness, not because of the integrity that was in our hands, but because Christ has overcome for us. Amen? He is risen, a prince and a savior. And his honor is not in the dust. But his fame 
is spreading throughout the earth. And his name is exalted far above every other name. And our great enemy, Satan, who is called the father of lies and the accuser of the brethren, is not able to stand against us to accuse us anymore. Hallelujah. (laughs) I love to be reminded of what Luther said to his fellow believers long ago. And I'll close with this. So, Caleb, if if you guys would like to come and get ready. Luther said this to his fellow believers long ago. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and he declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. And this is the reason why you and I today can have confidence. And moving forward, we can have confidence in the day of God's judgment. This is why we don't hate that word, the righteousness of God. Instead, we love that word. (laughs) In fact, that word has become for us our greatest source of comfort rather than a source of fear and terror. Because God is just, because God is righteous, he will never punish the same sin twice. For that would be unjust. It's good news this morning that our sins were punished in Christ. And now he speaks righteousness over you and me. His righteousness is our refuge. Amen? (laughs) And what a magnificent refuge that is. Our shield and our protection is with God who saves the upright in heart. Praise God. Praise God. So why don't we close just with, with a word of prayer and then I'll let Caleb lead us. Lord, we thank you today for Christ, our refuge. And we thank you, Lord, that the righteousness of God is our refuge. Our shield and our protection. Lord, we thank you that because our sins were punished in Christ, The fact that you are righteous and you are just comforts us because we know that you will never punish the same sin twice. So, Lord, we we glorify you today. We remember what you've done for us in Christ. And we rejoice today. Just like David rejoiced, he said in verse 17, I will give thanks to the Lord. Do I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Amen. Amen.